Father in the heavens, I appeal to you with my brothers and sisters here. It is written that we cannot do anything without Yahshua the Messiah. I ask that you grant that he be here among us with me to, to guide me in this and also with the, with the fellowship at large that uh, we can receive those things here that are right. And where I fall short, I ask, Father, that you fill in. In the name and through the blood of Yahshua, as his disciples, we appeal to you for these things. Hallelujah. I mean, indeed. A special welcome and shalom to all of you who are viewing this online. Northern Michigan, Lima, New York, Winchester, Tennessee, Colorado, viewers in California, Texas, Ohio, Missouri, and other points far from here. On behalf of the fellowship at Hold Summit, Missouri, I extend to you our sincerest shalom. I'm Brother Michael Bannock, originally from Chicago, now Fulton, Missouri. I tell people I'm from Chicago, nobody's perfect. I noticed in the Bible that everybody is known typically, I should be careful, typically people are known by three things, their name, where they're from, and their occupation. So you know my name, you know my origins. Uh, my occupation is I'm an engineer. We see this in the Bible. Yahshua of Nazareth, the carpenter. Hmm? Paul of Tarsus, the tent maker. The title of my remarks today is East Side, West Side. Part one, sins unto death. Now here's what's going on. If I'm given the grace to do so. I'll be having three installments for this. East Side, West Side is a reference to the male and the female sides of our existence. The objective is to do an overview of the three greatest weaknesses that we deal with in our respective worlds. The men sat over one, you know, over here and the females over there. And I call it east side, west side, because in some ways it's hard for us to understand how people's hearts and minds are operating on the other side of the tracks. So this is a combination of years of... of observation, experience, and research, it occurred to me that uh, if, I, if I describe these as sins and I dwell on that, it might sound like I'm condemning people. There's no condemnation here, not in my heart. I, I would like to, I prefer to call them vulnerabilities, but if you give in to those vulnerabilities, then they're sins unto death, aren't they? We're going to be experimenting today with some audiovisual things. I... Uh, it may not work. Now, it, you know, if it really, if it blows up in my face, we may have to reboot the computer. So um, I've been looking forward for a while to, um, oh, did I turn this on? He's on. So is this working for me? Already it's not working. How, how? It was working before. By the way, we did a little dry run before services and about an hour ago, and it froze the computer. But that's because I walked away and I had stopped using it. Let's see, is this thing working at all? Oh, there we go. Oops, don't let that scare you now. But this guy, how come this guy isn't working? Hmm. Well, I'm not going to put you through a technical session now. 
Remember the first time for anything's the hardest. I often tease other brothers. I say, do you remember the first time you kissed your wife? They say, yeah. I say, you got better at it after that, didn't you? You know, the first time for anything's the hardest, isn't it? Okay. Let's run through this then. We're going to have a three-part review of vulnerabilities particular to each gender. Topics covered this time. First, we're going to do four key principles of the good news. Why? If I'm going to talk about sin, I think I should spend some time doing evangelical work, empowering you to overcome sin. It's not enough to identify sin, call out sin, describe sin. I've got to also give you some, give you some equipment to overcome sin. So today I'll be giving you four key principles of the good news. And we'll start with that before we go to this, um, the guy thing and the girl thing. Now, um, one, one aspect of this that struck me as funny is if, if I was to give this material as a married man, I would be in a lot of trouble. Because my wife might say to me at home, you know, everybody's going to think you're talking about me. You know, and so... I'm going to do this while I can. You know, I've heard that when you get married, it happens kind of fast. So um, I want to get this, this whole thing about east side, west side off the table as quickly as I find the grace to do so. I'm not comfortable talking about weaknesses, particular to men and women. I've, I've carefully chosen my words to be discreet. But the real desire is for us to leave here today committed and dedicated to be overcomers. To be overcome. And that's hard to do, isn't it? But there's all these promises about that. Let's talk about the good news. There's many ways to describe the good news. I'm only going to give you one aspect today. Tie together some things maybe you've wondered about in your own studies. These uh, four principles are primary facts that lay the foundation of the good news. Um, today I'm going to give you what I think is profitable. Principle number one, Yahweh is king. Yahweh's the boss. That may not sound like the good news to you, but then if you look at Revelation 14, verse 6 to 7, it says something very interesting. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting good news, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. And to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear Elohim and give honor to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made the heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Yahweh's the boss. That's the very first, that's the primary principle. That's above all. Yahweh's in charge. This may not sound like good news, but you see up there I've underlined the words everlasting good news. That's what the book of Revelation says. This doesn't sound like the good news as you heard it up till now, but because it's so foundational, you'll see how the good news regarding Yahshua and all of that proceeds from this. Principle number two. Yahweh decides what is good and evil. Well, he's the boss. He decides right and wrong. Not you, not me, not our feelings, not our experiences. Sometimes even our conscience can be corrupted. I enjoy often telling this story because I have this desire to downplay your experiences as the source of verifying truth. 
For example, suppose um, we got into a time machine and we went back to that great procession to Jerusalem where David brings the Ark of the Covenant into town. They're dancing, they're singing, they're having a big time. Suppose we got out of our time machine and said, Stop! You're doing it wrong. You don't throw the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart. You're supposed to carry it with poles like royalty. They would probably blow me off, right? Because they'd say, look, we're dancing, we're singing, we're having a big time. And if you and I were to, to try to crash a Sunday Christian organization, say, listen, you've got to meet on Sabbath. Do this on Sabbath. They could just as well push back and say, well, we got big checks coming in the mail on time, and we got a youth group, we got a choir, we don't need your Sabbath thing. Yahweh decides what's good and evil. He decides what's right and wrong. In Deuteronomy 4, in verse 2, you shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your Elohim, which I command you. And then he repeats this in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Yahweh decides what's right and wrong. And that proceeds from principle 1. Genesis 2, verse 17. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That is the fundamental contest in the Garden of Eden experience. Who's going to decide right and wrong? Yahweh, or am I going to go experimenting? Well, sometimes uh, I get in trouble because I, um, well, I go after the big ones sometimes, don't I? Um, Friends, I must warn you, there's a temptation we all deal with, and that's the temptation to defend people, places, and things that appeal to us. We'll defend our friends, we'll make excuses for our children. If a popular figure or a political figure tickles our fancy, we'll make excuses for them. We might let them too close to our heart. I want to spend a moment and talk about the error of Jordan Peterson. How many people have not heard of Jordan Peterson? Oh, oh, good, good. So you have not been affected by this. So it looks like a whole lot of you have. He's a smooth talker. He's very enjoyable to listen to, very knowledgeable. But he has decided, he's, he's a famous uh, psychologist and lecturer and professor from Canada. He's real hot, red hot and popular right now. And it feels good listening to him. But if you pay close attention, what he's doing is He's trying to reconstruct right and wrong based on scientific inquiry, trial and error. We're, we're saving all this time. We know right from wrong because it was revealed to us. And what this fellow's doing, he's a very likable guy, but what he's doing is trying to reconstruct what Yahweh's already told us. And um, there's danger there. You're going to find that appealing. For example, he can tell you about um, the uh, statistical uh, risks of same-gender couples adopting children. He can tell you about the risks there are, but he has no problem with it. All he can do is tell you about the risks. I don't need to run an experiment on all of society to find out you know, what's good and bad. Yahweh decides that. Core principle number three. Again, I tell you, I'll tell you to the good news. You, we must approach Yahweh with personal acknowledgement of principle one and two. When we draw nigh to him, we have to acknowledge he's the boss 
and he gets to decide what's right and wrong. Now, if you don't know better, excuse me, <coughs> you will think that to draw nigh to Yahweh, you've got to be perfect. You've got to be all clean and perfect. If you read the Psalms with a close eye and tie in the prophets and Yahshua's teachings, something interesting emerges. A tiny number of times, a small fraction of the time, you will approach Yahweh and you will be clean. You will be perfect. And these are, these are points in your life you can pinpoint with accuracy. For example, when you come up out of the waters of baptism. At that moment, you're totally clean. At the end of the day of atonement. You know, if you're, you're not clean, you're supposed to be. You have a whole day to, to clean out, you know. How about before taking the cup and the bread? We're told to examine ourselves. There's also times of uh, self-examination. We get on our knees and we say, boy, did I blow it. You know, but but um, most of the time when we approach Yahweh, we are in need of mercy. When you draw nigh to him, you've got to admit your fault. You've got to say, I've sinned. Have mercy on me, the sinner. In Proverbs 28, 13, it says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. Yeah, a few times in the Psalms, you'll see the psalmist say, I've washed my hands, my heart is clean, search me, you won't find anything. Yeah, that sometimes happens. But most of the time, you should be pounding your chest in self-examination, like the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. Have mercy on me, the sinner. That's what Yahweh prefers. I'll go back to the Garden of Eden experience because so much of what we need is there. The Garden of Eden experience unpacks like DNA. It's so rich with theological content. If you recall, when they heard Yahweh walking through the through the uh, what is would be the garden, they heard Yahweh. They hid. They hid. That's not what he wants. They want. He would have preferred that they come to him and say, we blew it, we're sorry. Help us get out of this. Yahweh does not want us running. If there's any running to do, it would be to run to him, not running away. In Hebrews 11.4, there's a, a passage I enjoy bringing to remembrance. By faith, Abel offered unto Elohim a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Elohim testifying of his gifts and by it being dead yet speaks. Abel was called righteous by Yahshua. Observant Bible students will tell you, Cain offered vegetables like a Thanksgiving offering. Abel offered a bloody sacrifice, which was an open admission of guilt. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Abel was considered righteous because he offered a sin sacrifice. This is what Yahweh wants. We approach him acknowledging that he is supreme. He knows what right and wrong is. We admit we have fallen short. One of the things we're on this earth for is to find out who we are and to make the right course adjustments. In a little while, I'll talk about two specific kind of course corrections. Principle number four, I know there's many other aspects to this, but the fourth one I'd like to bring to remembrance is humility. The force which binds the first three principles I've mentioned today. 
Humility is the beginning of grace. Grace is the divine influence that leads you to virtue. I'm going to read a big chunk from James. If you're struggling with sin, if you think you can go higher, deeper, farther, James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10, gives you a nice snapshot of how to do that. From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts? That war in your members, you lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not. Because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with Elohim? Whosoever therefore shall be a friend of the world is the enemy of Elohim. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he says, Elohim resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I'm going to repeat that. Wherefore he saith, Elohim resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to Elohim, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's absolutely no reason to give up give in, cave in, fall down, roll over, play dead. Just resist the devil. You resist the devil with some of the strategies I'll be showing you here. And you keep going back to Yahweh in humility. And in there you find the kingdom. There you find rest for your souls. We have about as much of Yahweh in our lives as we want, especially in this country. You're free. When you have to give an accounting of your time in the day of reckoning, in this rich country where it's, it's almost impossible to starve, where we have, uh, we have machines doing all kinds of things for us, we really have as much of Yahweh in our lives as we want. If you are struggling with sin, you should be going in there with all guns blazing. We have research materials, we have Bibles, we have fasting and prayer, we have, we have so many things at our disposal. In Hebrews 12.4, there's an interesting remark. It says, you have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. I don't think it's necessary to strive to the point of bleeding. But if you have things in your life that you're struggling with, you have, you have plenty of motivation to be an overcomer. Sometimes I look back and I wonder how Yahshua did it. From a very young age, he must have learned to quickly flee from temptation in order to be successful in fulfilling the messianic office. What about you? Now, he's already blazed the trail for us. Question, am I born this way? Am I born a sinner? The answer is yes. I'm going to tap the break here and talk about a cultural phenomenon. You know, through... Um, well, through the modern era, there's a, a sector in the leftist uh, kind of liberal realm where they spoke against Yahweh's ordination of men and women, what he made them. This wicked culture had a quadrant of people saying, oh, this boy and girl stuff, you just learned that. They just teach you that. You know, that's just something society puts on you. Girls with dolls, boys with, you know, pop guns. That's just something the culture gives you. And they had a hard time acknowledging that Yahweh did make us different. 
between us, men and women. Now, all of a sudden, they want to endorse moral impurity between men, for example. And now they're suddenly saying, oh, I was born that way. You see how they flip and flop? Unnumbered days are saying, oh, no, this boy and girl stuff is a social construct. Then on alternate days, they say, no, I was born this way. What they're doing is they want to reject anything Yahweh made. They want to reject the Judeo-Christian ethic. Yahweh says we are born sinners. You'll find it verified in Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. You are made a sinner. He knows this. He wants you to acknowledge that and cry out to him for help, for the course corrections, for the things you have to do differently. You may have to give up a whole lot. You will likely have to reorient your thinking in major ways. But that's the path to the divinity we will experience in Yahshua, where we become like him. Okay, we're going to dig into it now. Sin number M1. M is in male. Number one, the guy thing. You know, just to be sure, I asked around. I asked a lot of guys, all right, guys, what's, what's the three biggest things? And everybody gave me the same answer for number one. It's so obvious, you know, but I had, I had to go through the motions so I could look you all in the eye and make, you know, tell you I made sure. And that's lust, right? Come on, guys, the big L, lust. My choice of words will be discreet. Please, please trust me now. But that's, that's what we struggle with, guys. Yahshua moves the center point of sin from your deeds back into your heart. And this is where Yahshua's preeminence as the primary plenary teacher. He is the sovereign. He says the deed is not enough. We're going to have to get the heart in order too. You have heard it was said to them of old, Matthew 5, verse 27, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You don't have to go all the way, guys. You've already committed this sin in your heart. One reason Jews reject Yahshua is because he forbids lust, which there are rabbis in the Jewish tradition, they teach that it's impossible to control that. They forgot the testimony of Job. Let's look at what Job said in chapter 31, verse 11. No, 31, verse 1. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? He's already sorted this out. This is why, this is why I think it's in the book of Ezekiel. It's great speaking up here with so many, uh, so many beloved elders and friends. You know, because if I get if, if I say something, I'm not sure if I can have one of the elders. And that is it. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Right. I think it's in Ezekiel where he identif- through him, Yahweh identifies three of the most righteous men, Daniel, Noah, and Job. Did I get that right? Okay. It's in Ezekiel. Can you imagine the discipline? This guy figured this out in ancient times. I shouldn't be looking upon a maid. Why should I think upon her? I want you to look closely. He connects his eyes with his thinking. He makes that connection way back in that ancient book. Some of us believe the book of Job is the oldest book we have. Note the connection between the mind and the eyes. 
To the unconverted, the entire matter seems hopeless. I enjoy talking as often as I can about that coworker. I'm going to call him Dom, as in Dominic. Um, he was a middle-aged guy, and suddenly, out of nowhere, he married this real young girl, and he had a wedding picture on his desk, and he looked so happy there. I was so happy for him. And um, I remember walking down the hallway with him at AT&T Bell Labs, and some gal was coming down the hallway from the opposite direction. And she was scantily clothed. And I still don't know how she got in the door, because the dress code doesn't allow that. But anyway, she was coming our way. Now, the way this worked out, uh, let's see, Don, uh, he was to my right, and I was like near the middle of the aisle, and she was coming toward us. And remember, this guy just got married. And on the wall was a fire extinguisher and an evacuation plan. And as we're walking down the hall, I'm not going to look her over, but as we're walking down the hall, Dom turns to the right, and he's thoroughly absorbed in the evacuation plan. Okay. 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 There's no way an engineer is going to be thoroughly absorbed with the evacuation plan. But he did not want to look at this gal coming toward us. And me, I just kept looking straight ahead. I'm telling you, it was, it was way out of order the way she was dressed. But what happened is his relationship with his wife meant more to him than catching a glimpse of this cutesy girl. Overcoming lust. We're going to talk about overcoming. This applies to all sin. Boy sins, girl sins, children sins, old people sins. I'm going to clobber you over the head for the next eight slides eight places where Yahshua says we must be overcomers. We're going to pluck them from the book of Revelation. Seven times Yahshua is going to tell us to be overcomers, and the eighth one, Yahweh himself speaks. So sit back and just drink it in. Revelation 2.7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the assemblies. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of Elohim. Well, that's funny. That's what we lost in the Garden of Eden, didn't we? To be an overcomer. As overcomers, we'll have access to that tree. Revelation 2.1, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit said unto the assemblies. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. (coughs) 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 Whoops, Revelation 2.17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the assemblies. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Revelation 2.26, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Revelation 3.5, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Revelation 3.12, He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my Elohim, and he shall go no more out. Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. 
And and deep into Revelation chapter 21, verse 7, this is the Elohim of the heavens talking now. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his Elohim and he shall be my son. So you got seven promises from Yahshua, one from the Father. (coughs) Please excuse me for that. If your theology does not include overcoming, you're a fake. Your theology must include overcoming. Overcoming at all costs. Sin is your mortal enemy. When I say mortal enemy, sin will kill you. The sins I'll be talking about here are sins unto death. Men, you've got to overcome this thing. And you're better off crying to Yahweh. This is not in the notes. Let's tap the brake and think about this. Yahshua taught us that we have to forgive each other 70 times 7 in one day. I did the math. It comes out to once every few minutes. You know, that's an awful lot of sinning and an awful lot of forgiving. So I got to forgive you guys 490 times a day. He is not going to require us to do more than him. If I have to forgive you 490 times a day, surely Yahweh can forgive you every time you come to him. You're better off fighting sin through him. You're better off going through him. Here's a list of strategies as far as overcoming lust, guys. I can't cover the whole topic in one presentation. I think you know that. But I want to give you a vision of hope. Get into the habit of averting your eyes, like my friend Dom at the, at the, at the office there. Just yesterday, I was at a truck stop in Springfield, Illinois, coming back from Chicago. Excuse me. And you guys know how our, our brains are wired. My eyes started drifting toward an advertising display in the gas station, you know, inside. And as my eyes got closer to it, I said, whoa, that's too interesting. And I had my head snapped back. And I thought, there we go again. I, what happens is it's a habit you develop. You can train yourself to say, oh, nope, I'm not, I'm not looking there. It's not worth it. Get into the habit of training your eyes to look the other way or make your head snap, whatever it takes. Take note of temptation points. People, places, things. There are people, places, and things in your life you're going to have to avoid because they bring you down. You know, by the way, this applies to anything, doesn't it? This applies to any kind of sin. There are people, places, and things. Yeah, let's tap the break here for this one, too. See these little anecdotes? I keep sticking them in here, even though they're not in the notes. I guess this would apply to both men and women. But in a, on occasion, this, this, this phenomena of outside attraction, is a, it's, it's a reality we have to learn to deal with and manage. Suppose you're in an office environment and someone of the opposite gender appeals to you in the wrong way. Just about the most destructive thing you can do is go to that person and say, boy, I, I really admire you. I have a hard time getting you out of my mind. That's just about the most stupid and destructive thing you could ever do. And many a man and woman have destroyed their lives, starting with that sliver of a conversation. Outside attraction is a part of life. You're supposed to manage that, get your friendships in perspective. But the sisters here, there's things I admire about every one of you. 
you know, I've got to be careful what I say. This is a reality we have to live with. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to see us go to the... We may have to, we, but I don't want to go to the place where we're sitting on opposite sides of the fellowship hall. But we should be guarded in what we say and think. These crazy ideas that will come into your minds, they're not of Yahweh, and you know it. Take note of people, places, and things, and environments where temptation's high. You've got to, to get out or be very careful there. Psalm 101, I found it interesting that Psalm 101 came up in today's service, didn't it? I will set no, uh, in verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. You should, uh, if something foreign to the spirit of truth is on that TV screen, off it goes. It could be a magazine that's coming into your home. How about it, friends? I'm getting kind of fed up with these conservative talk show hosts. Have you noticed how many of them are injecting profanity into the broadcast? One of them I thought was a good Catholic. Then I remembered, wait a minute, Southside Chicago Catholics, they talk like sailors. You know, I was raised a Catholic outside of Chicago. All the adults in my environment use profanity. The only exceptions were the nuns and the priests at the church down the street. Okay, but profanity is just like a part of life. You know, anyway, these these influences I found that these things I'm hearing are having an effect, a negative effect on me. How about you? Give up stumbling blocks that are a part of normal life. Yep, you may find things in your environment that you're accustomed to are foreign to the spirit of truth. We are not here to get acquainted with evil. We are here to flee from everything that's foreign to Yah's spirit. Take joy in the victorious battle. There'll come a point where you're actually going to take a special kind of joy, saying, you know, I can, I can brush this off. This ain't affecting me. There comes a point, men, where you... You can achieve that level of, of discipline. And um, I think I'm going to uh, jettison uh, some remarks I had about a specific case like that. Let's just say that some gals like to plop themselves in your presence just to see if they can get you to look them over. And it's a particular joy when you don't bite. You look the other way or you ignore them or walk away. When you find the strength to do that, it's a special joy. Recognize that your enemy is highly disguised. Man, if there's a woman who's got a, a wrong place lodged in your mind, uh, you should be aware that that's actually a very ugly and evil thing. And finally, for you young people, I don't want you young people to lose, uh, you know, to, uh, to lose sight of this. Use your youth to develop lifetime strategies for overcoming lust. Even you young men should be asking yourself, what, how does this enter me? What situations, what foods, what types of entertainment? Even the young people should use their station in life to develop strategies for overcoming this thing that visits the men. Now, a lot of women, I've learned, have a hard time believing how difficult it is for men to deal with this. Come up with your own list of strategies. But in a few minutes, I'll convince you girls of how hard it is. And when you find out how hard it is, I think you'll have a whole new look on life. 
I'm going to transition now to sin number F1, the female number one thing. This one's not as easy. I see some of the women here, they're tightening up their spines. They want to make sure they don't listen. They don't want to miss this one. It's unforgiveness. It's unforgiveness. And, uh, you know, I rejoice in the fact that you girls are so complicated, okay? And that connected to unforgiveness, there's so many other things. Here's the way it works. Yahweh, on one hand, gives us strengths, but those same strengths are vulnerabilities if they're not properly managed. You girls have been made more sensitive to fulfill your divinely ordained role on this earth. You girls have radar, you have sonar, you have heat detectors, cold detectors, mood detectors. Okay. That's to make you more capable for your role as a helper of mankind. Okay. This is divinely ordained. I'm not going to find fault with that. By the way, all these detectors you have are not infallible, are they? Having more intuition doesn't mean you're always right. You know, uh, so what happens is there are times when the, when the beloved sisters get offended and they have a hard time busting out of it, don't they? Okay, I made a promise a moment ago. I was going to convince you girls uh, how hard it is for men to cope with lust. Okay, sisters, the difficulty you have in managing your emotions it's, it's like a reflection of how hard it is for men to manage their eyes and their hearts. Uh, we're going to talk about unforgiveness, usually from the standpoint of, uh, of the woman. Because I want you girls to be victorious too. But you men should take note. If you men are trafficking in resentments and unforgiveness, maybe that would make you a girly man. You know, it's understandable if the, if the more sensitive vessel is more vulnerable. That, that would make sense. That's understandable. But if you men are trafficking in that stuff, shame on you. And uh, you've you got to grow up, you know. For the women, it's a matter of managing what you always give them in such a way that they're most effective. Yahshua makes forgiveness mandatory. Matthew 6, verse 14, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive men not their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Excuse me. It's mandatory. We're going to have to forgive. That's very hard. In some cases, it's very hard. I'm going to give you biblical resources and also some personal testimony, but one way to know whether you're forgiven is not by how you feel. Because sometimes those scars last a long time. Sometimes that pain just lingers. But one idea is to envision two buttons in front of yourself. One button says, forgive them, and the other says, send them to Gehenna. Okay? And just, would you really push the one that says send them to Gehenna? I don't think you would. If you've really forgiven somebody, you won't push that button. You'd push the other one. And I've had to ask myself that. Do I really forgive this person? Well, I don't want anybody to go to Gehenna. I I mean, there's a few times in my life I've scalded myself. I say, ooh. 
We don't know a whole lot about the Gehenna experience. We know there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's called outer darkness. We're given a few glimpses of it here and there. But one thing's for sure, you want to avoid it at all costs. And I don't want anybody going there. I, I, don't, I don't want anybody going there. I don't. There's a, there's a reality that sets in there where they scream bloody murder. They know it's over. That's it. There's no way out. We should not want anybody to go there, even the most heinous of them. There are spin-off evils that come projecting out of unforgiveness. Evil behavior, resentments, evil speaking, you know, like gossip, spiritual blindness, and then there's bitterness. We find in the book of Hebrews a connection between bitterness and what's sometimes called besetting sins. Hebrews 12, 14, verse, Hebrews 12, verse 14 to 16. Listen to what he says, please. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the sovereign. Look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of Elohim. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. <clears throat> there, are people smart, there are people smarter than me who have noticed fornicator and person there. Pardon, fornicator and profane person. I try to underline them in the slides. Bitterness leads to moral impurity and worldliness. And it happens all the time. It's a real tragedy, especially in this age. Our children seem to be getting disconnected from their parents. And those kids grow up without the guidance they need. And let's just say sin is more prevalent for them. Some of these sins, some of these offenses are small ones, in my opinion. Dad didn't take me fishing. Mom didn't take me shopping for my prom dress. At the time, those are very painful. But there are some unspeakable type of offenses, which I would never mention up here. At least I don't have the grace for it today. Some of these high power things are very hard to forgive. These things seem to take a greater toll on the sisters than the men. <clears throat> Somehow we must find the grace to forgive the unforgivable. Here's some evidence of unforgiveness. Keeping the offense unresolved. Now here's one the girls do. I'm going to try to play it for a laugh, but how many times uh, has a has a man gone to a woman and said, honey, is something wrong? And the wife says, nothing. Everything's fine. No, no, honey, something, something's bothering you. No, nothing. Everything's fine. How many times have we seen that? I mean, I've seen it, you know. And what's happened is by keeping the offense unresolved, it hinders forgiveness. I beg you to dedicate yourself to the restoration of the sinners in your life. That's hard. In some cases, I, the people who have offended me, in some cases, I, I really want to settle the score. But you should be really dedicated to the salvation of the people who have offended you. Denying a need for resolution? Instead, you should welcome restitution. Well, you see in the Torah where Yahweh 
proscribes restitution. The Hebrew word is shalom. Psalm 34, verse 12 to 14. What man is he that desires life and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Another evidence of unforgiveness is if you can't get somebody out of your mind. The resentment is so strong, it's like you're going into a, like a, a never-ending loop. Fasting and prayer may be your only option. Now, the most serious thing we have out there is where somebody is possessed by a bad spirit. That's, that's the worst thing we know of. Then Yahshua says, for that kind of high-octane case, fasting and prayer is the answer. So look... We can't see everything, but it might be that the thing you're dealing with doesn't require fasting and prayer. Maybe it doesn't call for that. But if you don't know what to do, you know for sure prayer and fasting will work. It might be like shooting a mouse with an elephant gun, but at least you get the job done. So where do lust and unforgiveness intersect? In the imagination. It's in the mind. Now I'll illustrate this. The mind of an unconverted man wallows in evil imagination. The mind of an unforgiving woman thrives on imagination. Again, these things can happen to either gender. Remember Frank, uh, brother Frank Kennedy back, uh, back east, Elder Frank, I talked with him about this. He says, yeah, there's, there are trends, but we do tend to genderfy these things. And um, anything I'm saying here to one side would apply to the other to some degree. The forgiving lady is lovable. If you can find it in your heart to forgive girls, you are very lovable. The gracious lady is attractive. How about it, men? When the ladies cut us a break when they're gracious and they overlook our faults, our hearts open up to them. We, we are more drawn to a gracious woman. Forgiving the unforgivable is divine. I know there's some things out there that are very hard to forgive. It is written in Isaiah. I should have put it in the notes. It is written in Isaiah. Yahshua came to bind up the, the brokenhearted. Here's something I neglected to put in the notes. Boy, no matter how hard I try, I keep forgetting something. You'll find it in um, Yahshua's words about abide in my word, and that my word will cleanse you. One of those passages, the Greek word is katharis, something like that. It means that his words drain away evil. Drain away evil. If you really want to get past some of this unforgivable stuff, you have to throw yourself into him and his teachings. Read his words. You can buy Bibles where it's in red letters. You can zoom right into what he says. His words drain away evil. Those words have power and punch. I remember when I first read the Sermon on the Mount in uh, our Roman Catholic Bible, the, 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 the Dawe Reims Bible. So that was from Yahshua's Hebrew, to Greek, to Latin, and then to English. And even though it went through three steps of translation, the power of his words were still there. Yahshua's words drain away evil. 
That's your medicine. I really regret not putting it up there in the notes. Yahshua's words pull that out. You become more like him by beholding him. Forgiving the unforgivable is messianic. You may be the only person to pray for the offender. You may be the only person that will offer a prayer for them. Unforgiveness hurts you more than it hurts them. Resentments, carrying this stuff, it, it damages you more than them. They forgot about you. By unforgiveness, the evil continues. It affects you, those around you, and even future generations. Forgiveness creates a force shield of protection, preventing the spread of evil and keeping it contained in your vessel. And then it's drained away by Yah's word. I'm going to read, it's kind of hard to read. I'm going to read from 1 Peter 2, verse 19 to 25. Oh, I take particular pleasure in in acknowledging. um, I had the pleasure of hearing this read by Brother uh, Paul Hinson. He recorded the book of Peter, letters of Peter for me. Peter, I I should have asked you to read this. You're just so good at it, Brother Paul. But um, this, this passage is a treasure. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward Yahweh endure grief... 1 Peter 2, verse 19. Suffering wrongfully, for what renown is it when, if you be buffeted with your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with Yahweh. For even hereunto were you called, because the Messiah also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself unto him that judges righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. For you were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Everybody's read that at one time or another. You're about to see something that very few point out. The very next verse is in the next chapter. Here's the next verse. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conduct of the wives. I didn't bring that up to recapitulate headship in the household. I brought it up because Peter is telling the ladies, look at what Yahshua went through. And he did not revile. You know, he did not. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again when he suffered. He threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. The sisters who, I, 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 I got four sisters and a mom. It seems I'm always siding with the women. You know, it's, it's a really funny how it goes. I'm always siding with the women. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I have a taste of it. There are times when I have felt that women have more spiritual potential than the men because you're so well equipped. You're equipped in so many ways that you have a call to humility that's part of your office. And I, at times I wonder how you can do it. Well, I know that I, I know, I know I speak for all men. We love you girls. We love you women. We cherish you. 
And I don't want to see any woman struggling with unforgiveness. The best thing I can do is point you to your master, abide in his words and his teachings, and you'll see your, your outlook change. All that evil will be drained away. Well, we accidentally have two. Um, oh, we're done. We're almost done here. I decided to close by recapitulating James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. I gave you this earlier because I wanted you to have some evangelical tools for dealing with sins inside of you. The most important thing to leave here with is that overcoming is possible. No, overcoming is required. I want to recapitulate number four, humility, the force binding the, all the principles I talked about. This humility gives us grace. And uh, this will close the presentation. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with Elohim? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of Elohim. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusts to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he says, Elohim resist the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to Elohim, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I just remembered one more thing. There was... um, there's a classification of conflicts that puzzled me all my life. I'm going to tell you what I know about this. I cannot up here take on the full arena of human relations. But um, you got a situation where everybody remembers it differently, that incident. Ever have that happen? Everybody remembers it differently? Am I the only guy who's been through that? Okay. You said this. You did that. I said, no, I, I don't remember that. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about memory. Um, it looks like a, a slide is missing here. I talked about how the imagination is the intersection between lust and unforgiveness. Please, I ask you to give me a little room for this. I met an electroacoustical engineer um, an engineering conference last autumn, and he told me the secret of a product many of you have seen in the magazines. You see these little radio boxes that they, put, they claim have concert hall sound? Little boxes, concert hall sound. And of course, as an engineer, I look at that, and I say, how did you get all that sound out of that, um, that little box over there? Um, by the way, that's how I feel about Michaela's beautiful voice. How do you get all that sound out of <laughs> Oh, that voice over hallelujah. I've been so blessed by the music ministry today. The special offerings today had me thinking of the night of special music. It was just delicious. How do they get all that sound from the boxes? It turns out they don't. What they've done is psychological studies. What they do is they pump out the sounds they can, and your mind fills in the rest. It's a trick. You think you're hearing concert hall sounds. Your mind's filling it in. Your memory is not infallible. And many of you are in bondage to to memories of things that never happened. It's scientifically predictable. As time goes by, your memory tapers off and you forget things. And if something offensive happened, you won't remember the details right. But you'll remember how you felt. 
And so the pain fills in what you forgot. And before you know it, you're adding things to that experience. And so many times people will say, oh, I remember it like it was yesterday. Friends, vivid memory is not accurate memory. And we have to live with the fact that we may have to cover old offenses, yeah, ancient controversies, where we've forgotten the details. And this is a common phenomenon in that whole area of memory. If two people come together and they don't remember the details the same, there is a way out. I figured this out for myself, and then I found later that professional counselors do this too. So even though I can't talk about the, everything about relationships, I can give you this. If you're in a conflict resolution situation and you remember the details differently, one way to create a bridge is to say, look, I don't remember it the way you do, but the way you describe it is sure bad. And I agree that was a bad thing. I don't remember it. I can't apologize for something that didn't happen. But I agree with you that it's bad. Would you please forgive me for what I can't remember and help me not do that anymore. Coach me. Work with me. If you can agree at the very least that the bad thing is a bad thing, you have a starting point for rebuilding. But I beg you, especially if you're dealing with old resentments and old offenses, your memory is probably torn it way out of control. And I know you want to think you're infallible, but you're not. Okay? Well, you've been very patient with me. Yahweh bless you.